He offers a spiritual safe haven for inmates at the Muskogee County Jail, and he's the CEO of Safe House Ministries, a Columbus homeless shelter. You're about to meet this face of faith coming up. There is the word, there is the way, and brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. Thank you once again for joining us on this edition of Faces of Faith. I'm Phil Scoggins, your host, and I am delighted to introduce a dear friend of mine, Neil Richardson. Neil is the CEO of Safe House Ministries, a Columbus homeless shelter. You are also the chaplain of the Muskogee County Jail, a position you've held for the past 12 years. Thanks for being with me today, Neil. My pleasure, Phil. I'm honored. We always start with assuming that folks know very little about my guest as far as your background, where you're from. So share with us some of your early years and where, uh, where you came from. Well, actually, I'm from Miami, Florida. Miami. Yes. My <laughs> grandmother would slap my wrist if I said Miami. <laughs> so we were, um, my family came from southern Illinois and northern Alabama. All got here at about 1908 into Miami. And that was when mosquitoes were the size of your fist and there was no screens. And no air conditioning. So I know that all of my forebearers were wanted someplace else. (laughs) Anyway, um, I grew up there, um, traveled. My mother married a guy in the Air Force. and We traveled around the country a lot. And I ended up back in Miami in my early 20s. Um, I grew up at Central Baptist Church in Miami. Okay. Um, My mom, uh, I'll do a couple of the... Oh, poor me things. But my mom was an alcoholic and a bad one, um, a violent person. And we had the uncle of the week. Um, that's depends who was going to pay the bills for the short period of time. And my mom worked as a bartender, which probably is not the right thing to do when you have an alcohol problem. And um, so that was kind of our, I have a real sister. Her name is Raylan. We ended up with steps and halves and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. you get in the blended families. But Raylin and I grew up in that in, in, in that environment. Um, what was the church uh, atmosphere that, that you went to? What what bearing did it have on your early years, if any? <laughs> so, my mom would not let my grandparents get custody of us. Okay. So they could get us on weekends. Okay. So Friday nights we went to heaven, and then Sunday evenings we went back to hell. Wow. And that was we were in foster care for a number of years as well. Mm. So um, that's kind of the start of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to use anything to make excuses. Phil, you and I have talked in the past. I'm a recovering cocaine addict. Um, and so I guess I'm one of those people that tried to find places to hide, tried to find places to seek shelter when you're a little tiny thing in a big, mean world. Um, and cocaine just became one of the toys of those hiding places. Um, Ended up at Southern Illinois University, went one year, thought I'd paid for a degree, and they thought you didn't pull grades, you couldn't come back. <laughs> so, And then I won my first lottery. Uh, Richard Nixon pulled my birth date out number six. Yeah, whoa. And, um, Mine was 352. Yeah, um, I do share jealousy for you. Mm. Um, I joined the Air Force. Okay. And um, What year was that? 1970. And um, So we're close to the same age. Yeah. Neither of us are going to say it, are we? 69. Yeah, I'll be 69 in December. Okay. So you're an old man, right? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I feel like it sometimes. So 
So you headed where in the Air Force? <clears throat> yeah, I was stationed at Chanute in central Illinois, um, and it was a training base. So I worked in permanent. I worked in uh, personnel. Uh, funny story. I figured if I was going to be in the military, I might as well go overseas. So I put in for NAM. They gave me central Illinois. I put in for special forces. They made me a secretary. <laughs> I was going like this. Just life stuff isn't working out. You know, yeah. why bother making goal lists? Because nothing's going my way. But um, finished that. Kind of just kicked around. Um, I came back to Miami to be with my grandparents because that had been my spiritual base at any point in time. It was like I need to get home, and they were home. And then Central Baptist in downtown Miami was home, and so I would always try to get my roots back in, in shape. Tell me about them. Oh, amazing, amazing, amazing Christian couple. My grandfather um, went to work. He went. He played ball at Birmingham Southern, lettered in four sports. I got to tell you this because it's hilarious. He had a football uniform. It was the leather thing, you know. No, um, no face mask. No, no. And, and we were ta- I was talking about it, and I said, I thought you were a farm boy. What farm boys learn to play football? And he went, oh, you'll never believe this. He said, I got a baseball scholarship to come out of Goodwater, Alabama, to go to Birmingham Southern. He said, I get on campus. He said, I'm walking around, and there were gangs. Oh, what are you talking about? He said, these gangs would get together, and they would talk for a while, and then they'd fight. And then they'd talk for a while, and then they'd fight. And I went, you're talking football, right? And he went, well, I found out later it was called football. And, uh, and he ended up lettering four years in a row. <laughs> so Had to have some talent. And back in the 20s, the NFL was founded, and they had four teams, and he was offered to play at the, uh, the New York Giants. And he said when he found out what they paid, he got a job. <laughs> <laughs> then, um, yeah, as opposed to now. Yeah. yeah. And then my grandmother graduated from the University of Miami in 1930. University opened in 1926. So I come from somebody who set high standards for herself mm-hmm. and for a female to graduate from a college in 1930. I think that's amazing. Um, she worked one year, married my grandfather. And then, um, you know, they made sure that I met Jesus as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they shared gospel. They shared the Bible. Um, what did you see in their lives that you wanted? Oh, I told you before. I went to heaven when I got to their house. And we went to hell when they had to take us back. Um, and so I, 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 I dearly love my grandmother. Now, I will tell you this. My grandmother prayed for me every day on her knees that I would get over the drug addiction. And, and I'm not a bright person. So it took me 30 years to stop using cocaine. Now, uh, there were periods, much of that I was what you call a functioning addict. You know, held the job, did stuff. Seemed like I functioned well in the community. But, um, you know, my grandmother would always pray. She knew what was going on. And she prayed that she just get this monster out of me. Um, she passed before her dreams, her, her prayers were answered. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe in my heart of hearts that God pulls her over to the curtain every now and then, opens it up and goes, answered prayer. Yeah. And, I, and I cherish that. So, Phil, honestly, I try to make sure that my life, <clears throat> the moment God does pull the curtain back, I'm not acting a fool. <laughs> Just in case that's when Mimi gets to look. That so, what you, that's what you called her, Mimi. Yeah. So, huge, 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 important person in my life. Um, you know, after Jesus, she's the next stop when I get there. I just, I owe her so much. And, and it's nice to know that the first time that 
She prayed to God. He said, yes, it's just going to take this one a minute because he's a little slow. So, well, Do you remember the time that you gave your heart to the Lord? Oh, yeah. I was, it was a Sunday evening church service, and the pastor started doing the invitation, and God just kept saying, you're going to need me. Go. And so I seven. Wow. And I got up and I went. I told the pastor, I said, God just told me I need him. I need to get here. Um, and looking at the, the ride that I've been on, yeah, I don't know how much worse it could have been had he not been around. So protected me, guided me, allowed me to learn by bouncing into rocks and hurting myself and sadly others. And I think that's the, the part that still hangs. You know, mm-hmm. I can handle what I did to me. I've been mm-hmm. forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I cut a bad wake in the harbor. How did the drug addiction start? Gosh, it was, you know, the first time I ever got high, I was 13. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't even smoking pot. I didn't do the gateway drug. I took a second all. Um, somebody, we were, we were out west. And uh, kids playing in the street, yakking and stuff up. And some guy... You know, they, the second alls are red. They look like a transistor in the back end of an old radio. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe not a transistor, but a resistor. Yeah. One of those, all those mm-hmm. other funny little things. Anyway, the guy pulled it out and did pull it off. And he goes, eat this. And I went, why? You're going <laughs> to, do I need a speaker? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, it'll make you feel a little more calm. And it did. I loved it. You know, and so I, f- I found other excuses to get high. Um, and then... It became an important part of my secret me. So take it, and back then, I, those are downers, they call them. So it's like alcohol's a downer, um, a co- you know, cocaine is an upper. Um, and, and in retrospect, I found out quite by accident, I was in the hospital once, and I couldn't sleep. And the doc authorized me a, a sleeping pill and two <laughs> Uh, and so double the normal your, amount you're supposed to take. Mm-hmm. And I spent the entire night pacing the halls of the hospital. And I went, I thought the sleeping pills were not supposed to energize me. And yeah. So I found out that I have inverse reactions. So I can take a, a drug designed to take race you up, you and, up it and, and it you down. chills me out. So anyway, that's um, – and, and I, I ended up with cocaine. I liked cocaine. So – but – um, never been a pot fan. And um, the thing about cocaine is it, especially in the 80s, it was cool. Um, and so it wasn't like I was one of them drug addicts. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just doing this party thing, so I must be cool. And so it looks good on the outside. Did you ever reach a point where you almost died? Yeah. Um, I blacked out... Um, from doing too much. Yeah, and, and uh, overdosed a couple of times. So I, I'm convinced, Phil, that God played a role in making sure that I couldn't do anything stupid so that um, you and I could be here today and other things that I've, God's allowed me to be involved with here in Columbus. What well, put a um, stumbling block in your drug use pathway. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I thought I could handle just about anything and you know, it wasn't until the very end that it that I threw everything away. You know, so while I was functioning, but 
But I called my oldest son on his birthday, and it's July 15th, so near an anniversary moment. Mm -hmm. I called him, and before I could get happy birthday out, he had already hung up on me. And then I talked to my youngest son, and I you know, just yakking about something else. And I said, boy, your brother's a little jerk. And he went, come on, Dad, you're a drug addict. You embarrass all of us. You know, and your youngest is usually the one that's the most forgiving quicker. You know, the older one went, Dad, man, you're an idiot. You know, and the middle one, he's the, think he's the thinker. Mm -hmm. um, so the younger one is where I could usually could turn to for an ally. Mm -hmm. and, and he just came straight out and said that. I think it was the most bruised... I've ever been. So it really hurt. That's when it dawned on me. I, I got to stop this. What, uh, what was the answer? For me, it was twofold. I already had a relationship with the Lord. I just put him on hold a lot. Um, so one, I had, to, I had to reconnect an active relationship with the Lord. And then two... I had to get involved in 12-step programming. So I uh, got a sponsor, started going to meetings, started working steps, started doing the things. I mean, somebody laid it out. Mm -hmm. um, Explain I'm, quickly for those that wouldn't. So the, uh, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Bill W. and his buddy wrote them in a coffee shop. They are scripturally correct. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, you understand that I'm – unmanageable. I can't do this on my own. I'm helpless. I got to find something bigger than me that can help me. And the only thing bigger than me that I know of is God. And then I got to actually allow him to take charge. Then I need to take a look at kind of me. You know, who am I? What's going on inside here? How come I play hide and seek for myself and others? What do I do these things? You know, try to navigate my own laundry list of garbage. So you can throw it away. And then, so the first three steps is really about acknowledging I'm not God, he is. Why don't I let him be in charge? The second three steps is kind of like, you know, I got baggage, but Christ did climb up on that cross. When he got to my name, he didn't jump. Okay? He stayed and said, I got this. And so those three steps is where I get to kind of wash all the nastiness out and throw it away. Mm -hmm. Take the trash out to the road and let it get picked up. The third three steps is I start processing the damage that I've caused others. Making amends where I can. Um, making amends where it wouldn't hurt somebody. Um, and then the last, so at that point in time, the first nine steps, you kind of process who's in charge, who's not. Get rid of your guilt. Yeah, try to make amends for the damage that you've caused. And then the last three steps is you... Or three nice simple folds. Pay attention when I make a mistake, apologize. Second, work hard to improve my conscious contact with God and our relationship. And three, pay it forward. So I think that's been a lot of why God moved me to Columbus was to pay it forward. When did you move here? Gosh, July 23rd of 2008. So um, it's hilarious. Uh, Becca, who is, we've been dating since September of 2008. Um, Becca's birthday is July 23rd. Wow. So tomorrow is my anniversary of moving to Columbus and her birthday. 
And I often remind her that I don't have to spend big money because God already gave her me for her birthday. <laughs> so, That's going to only last so long. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, I think I'm the only one that thinks it still has value. <laughs> so how did you get here? What was the um, dynamic that allowed you to, to just make the decision? And where were you before you, you got to Columbus? In Miami. Um, gosh, on June the 4th of 2007, I called my ex-wife and said, I think I'm dying. And she thought I was back on the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, are you kidding? And I said, no, I'm serious. I need you to take me to the hospital. Now, I have an ex-wife because of my addiction. But we've done a good job of being good parents and friends. So it's not that, you know, that evil, no good, mm-hmm. that rotten her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have some baggage, I've done some damage, but we have three children, and we were willing to accept our responsibility to be parents together. And so the, the love that, that was real between us, you know, can't go away. The pain and some of the obstacles had to go away. So, I, and I, my hat's off to her, because if she hadn't eventually put me out, who knows how long I would have stayed. That was, she was in tandem with the boys, just watching it all fall apart, but... So she took me to South Miami Hospital. I got there. I fell in the parking lot, crawled inside, saw a security guard, and that's the last thing I know. It was June the 4th of 2007. I woke up on July 23rd? No, 21st. July 21st of 2007, so eight weeks in a coma. Mm. I found out that I had necrotizing fasciitis. That's that staph infection known as the flesh-eating disease. And there's no antibiotic or routine that you can go through. If they don't dig it out, it kills you. And it's got a, I, I'm one of the 5% that get it that live. So it started underneath my arm here, right next to all the vitals. They told my family I was going to die. Um, God drove it down into my right thigh, across my abdomen, down into my left leg. Um, they nicked my vocal cords when they were doing a tracheotomy the second time I had pneumonia. Um, and then the nerve damage in my legs, I was told I'd, I would probably never walk or talk again. <laughs> Oops. Uh, and probably haven't shut up since. But um, so I was, had a difficult time walking, had to relearn how to walk and function. And I was relearning how to figure out how to, you know, for a while, if you, that tube, if you don't put your finger over the hole, you can't speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Rob Dahl who's been a dear friend of mine for 30 years, find out about the situation that I'm in, and he said, why don't you come up here and sell cars? And I went, what do you mean? Now, Phil, at that point in time, I used to run campaigns for a living. The polls that they give to citizens about jobs and credibility, you know, the second to last person is, is car salesmen. I'm sorry, is politicians. The second to last hated person is politi- is 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 politicians, and the bottom is car salesmen. So I said, Rob, you want me to leave Miami, Florida, move to Columbus, Georgia, the woods, give up the beach, mm-hmm. wear jackets in the winter, come up here, and then go from the second least liked person on the planet to the <laughs> most least liked person on the planet. And I said, no. And then God just kept closing doors and closing doors and closing doors, and finally, about six weeks later, I said, you know what, I'll come. I'll do it. So I came up here. Rob had somebody pick me up at the airport in Atlanta, brought me here. Um, I stayed with he and his house for a few days. We found an apartment. 
I started selling cars. I'm horrible. I don't want to take everybody's money. You know, you, you got to want to make a profit uh, for you and the dealership. And I always tried to figure out how I could get the person a good deal. And they kept saying, you know, this isn't how this works here. <laughs> um, but I volunteered to, to, to minister in the jail. Um, and there were six guys and two gals that showed up every Sunday. There are 28 dormitories in the Muskogee County Jail, so we only had eight people. That's horrible. Um, God kind of put it on my heart that we should start a ministry and build a chaplain's office there. Um, started talking to the sheriff, started talking to some local church leaders, and we put together a little 501c3. The sheriff did what all government people say is, love your idea, we just don't have any money. Mm-hmm. And so we said, how about we just raise it? And they went, oh, you want to come in here and work for free? Come on in. <laughs> and so I did. I went to work for free. Um, and God provided, as God always does. And then slowly over time... Um, so this was 2008? Yeah. Well, 2009. Nine. Okay. So, yeah, I was with Rob for a year. Okay. And then uh, October of 2009, of we birthed the, the, the chaplain's office in the Muskogee County Jail. Um, it's grown to the point now where it's, we have an active GED program. We've given out um, 190 plus high school diplomas inside that jailhouse. We have a veterans dorm where we work with these guys that have been deployed, who've fought for their country. Most of what they're doing is usually drug and alcohol related, self-medicating, not admitting that they got some PTSD issues. So dealing with the physiological and the psychological challenges of PTSD and just kind of reconnecting with that battle buddy thing where they had personal discipline. Um, we opened a fatherhood program, and we get guys that go in there for seven weeks at a time, and they, we teach them how to be a better parent, how to be a better partner with the mother, and be a good role model for their children. 50% of people that reconnect with their family while incarcerated don't come back to jail. And, um, and then we have faith-based recovery programming for men and for women in the jail trying to deal with substance abuse issues. What has been some of the analytics, some of the statistics that you might have off the top of your head as to the difference it's made in the lives of the ones that you've ministered to in the jail? So I'll, I'll give you some numbers, and then I'll give you a little quick story. Good. Um, 67% of the people that walk in the back door of the jail are coming back almost all within six months. Two-thirds. Yeah, you could stand at the back door with a $100 bill and put it on every one of them. You're going to win two, lose one. It's a profitable game. Um, Of our program dorms and of the people who are active in GED and these other programmings Mm -hmm. that we're doing for both men and for women, about 38% come back. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost half. That's huge. I mean, first of all, the impact on families, the impact on this community, the impact on those individuals' lives, you know, that's powerful since it, you know, costs hundreds of dollars a day to feed and house and take care of inmates. And if they need medical or mental health attention, um, somebody not coming back is is huge for this community. Mm -hmm. I have a little joke whenever I speak in public, you know, and I guess I'm blowing my, my act here, but... I always start off with this line, you know, I'm the chaplain at the Muskogee County Jail, and it's good to know that I only recognize about two of you. And that's usually good for a giggle. 
So <laughs> Sunday, I preached in a church, and this whole section over here were all people over the last 12 years that have done something in the ministry, whether it's in our substance abuse program, been in one of our shelters, um, been in the jail, and we're active in the program. I mean, I got in, I said, I started to do the joke, and I went, I do know everybody in here. Yeah. <laughs> Be- it was like God gave me this present to see all these people who were successful in real life. You know, one with a baby, you know, one with a new wife, people who were, who were just rocking the world, you know. And, and I don't think there's a time that I don't go out in public that I don't bump into somebody who's doing it right, that we've met in the jail or we met through the safe house, that, that, that they've got it going on. I ran into a guy the other day who, who owns his own lawn service. I mean, a very successful service. He's got employees. He's got crews running around town. You know, he stopped getting high. He started taking advantage of what he knew. He worked hard. He grew a business. Um, I talked to a woman yesterday who, you know, we kind of got an employment crisis right now in our community. Was we've got more jobs than mm-hmm. people that are willing to work. And, um, you know, we, we helped somebody call, make a phone call and get a job. You know, she's all excited because she's got a record. She didn't think anybody would ever want to help mm-hmm. her. You know, some, some guy, but <laughs> you're willing to go to work? You show up on time, come every day? Heck yeah. Get in here. So. There's been uh, Bible, the Bible is full of uh, jail stories. Good things can happen in jail. Yes. Yes. And I think some of the stories that you're sharing are examples of what your ministry and what your chaplaincy, the impact that it's had, the positive impact that it's had inside the walls of, of the Muskogee County Jail. Let can I us, tell you, can I tell you a funny little thing? So not this past Saturday, but the one before that, I jumped out of an airplane. What a hoot. 68 years of age, and I'm a skydiver. And it started because... A couple of other people who are active in recovery decided that we needed to have adventures in our lives and include other people who are, who are in recovery so that the people that we come in contact with can know that, A, we can afford it because we're not wasting our money on drugs. B, recovery is fun. You know, not getting high, not going out and getting smashed on Friday night at the bar doesn't mean I gave up having fun. Mm-hmm. And so uh, seven of us drove up to this airport. I saw it on Facebook, and it was phenomenal. It was, I, a, it I was a hoot. I, I think I would have liked to have tried that. Phil, it, you could get for half price if you <laughs> paid him before you left. I've already paid for my next jump. What a, it was a blast. But the key thing was every one of us was in recovery, and we did it just as a way of witnessing to people that this is what God has done in my life. I mean, really and truly, I was about three miles closer to God than you are. <laughs> I mean, if something happened, I was already there. That was phenomenal. That's a great story. Let's, we've made a passing reference to the Well, uh, we haven't brought this to the table. Let's go ahead and lay it out there. You are within the last uh, few weeks uh, or days of your uh, leaving the chaplaincy at the Muscogee County Jail and becoming full-time chief executive officer of Safe House Ministries. Congratulations. Yes, Thanks. 
now for folks who are listening to this and they say Safe House Ministries. Tell me about it. Okay. So I, I lay before you a wide open uh, <laughs> um, pictograph and, and let you paint the colors of what Safe House is doing in the lives of people uh, here in Columbus. You live dangerously, Phil. You know, I got ordained as a deacon and they let you tell your story. And then I, when I got ordained as a minister, they don't hand you the mic. <laughs> they know you don't know how to shut up. <laughs> we have um, 30 more minutes, so take your time. Talk all you want, but we're flipping the switches and, and the lights are off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it birthed out of the jail. I had a guy come back to jail, and if there was ever somebody that I was going to bet on to make it, he memorized Scripture. He studied. He could share with other people how Jesus was touching him inside that jail. He was arrested before the sun came up the next morning. I mean, I was brokenhearted. So, you know, I went to him and I went, what the heck? And he said, my family, everybody did what you said. No drugs, no paraphernalia, nothing at the house. We had a little welcome home party and everybody drank. <laughs> and I went, your mom doesn't know about cake and ice cream. <laughs> So he got hammered, mm -hmm. and then he went out and chased his normal drug of choice, and he bought some coke from an undercover cop, so he didn't even get to use it. And when we started talking about what happens, same playground, same playmates, you're going to repeat the same behaviors. That's just a flat-out fact. And so he went back to the world where he got high, and he did it again. The, the deck is stacked against people exiting that jail if they don't have some kind of an alternative playground to go to okay so we opened the safe house which at that time was a little shotgun shack cross street from the jail uh, we rehabbed a, a broken down shotgun house what year um 2010 okay and that was the original safe house we opened in november and bill reeves had his wrecking yard next door and he said anything you want free just come get it and so we needed a giant board and a bunch of boards and we needed bricks. He just said, come over and take what you need. And Becca, who at the time was a city inspector, told me what we did and told me how to do it. Mm -hmm. We said, yes, ma'am, and did it. And we rehabbed that building and we opened it up and we served lunch every day. We had coffee going on and we just tried to create a safe space where somebody who was trying to deal with being an ex-offender could get some support or just a place to get some respite. And that's really how Safe House started. It just became an alternative to going back to the same playgrounds. Now, this lady comes to the jail one day. She'd been out for a week. She's carrying her one-year-old daughter, and she's homeless. So I'm talking to her, and I'm going, what happened? Because you got out a week ago. She goes, well, I went home, and I was with my mom. And, um, but she put us out. And I went, like, did y'all have, like, an argument? And maybe we had a fight. Maybe we could do a little counseling and mm -hmm. fix this up. And she said, no, mom's boyfriend said them or me. And uh, I told that story in a church, and the pastor knew the names. And I was going, like, how would you know that? And he said, um, the mother called this church six months ago and asked us to pray for her daughter and her granddaughter because they were out on the streets homeless, and she thinks her daughter's doing drugs and turning tricks. So our mother of the year put her daughter and her granddaughter out and then called the church and got them some prayer. And sadly, 
I watched her and that child walk away because at that moment in time, there were 12 beds in Columbus, Georgia for a woman. Forget about it if you got a kid. We were on calling people in Phoenix City, all the way to Opelika, nothing. I watched her walk away. And so we started praying, and we started praying, and through a series of events, uh, the sheriff took a couple of properties that were collateral for a failed bonding company. I tried to get the sheriff to let us have one for a dollar a year, and he said sheriffs can't be in the real estate business. Mm-hmm. Um, the Army called up, and they had made some kind of inventory mistake, and they had too much furniture, and would we take brand-new furniture off their hands. So I had 24 brand-new beds, dressers, TV, entertainment centers, couches, refrigerators, microwaves. We're walking by some washers and dryers, and he goes, you want any of those? And I went, have you ever noticed that it always takes two dryers to do one wash load when you go to the, the cleaners? And he went, yeah, you want four dryers and two washers? And I went, yeah. And so I had enough furniture to start a 24-bed women's shelter with no building. <laughs> so who stepped up? Well, uh, a friend put it in his warehouse until we could find a place. Mm-hmm. The sheriff was right. Sheriff shouldn't be in the real estate business, but he could donate it to the city of Columbus, who then turned around and negotiated a deal with us for a dollar a year. And, and I'll tell you this funny little thing. So we're signing the papers, and he goes, we need the money. I went, what money? And he goes, the dollar a year. And I went, isn't that like government ease for free? <laughs> and he went, no, I got to have. I said, well, I didn't have a penny in my pocket. I mean, I was broke that day. And I'm going, well, it's not fair that you could get all five years up front. <laughs> I mean, doesn't everybody have four quarters under their seat in the car? <laughs> I was going to go down and find it. So Becca worked in the same office as that assistant city manager. And I called her and I went, you got any money? And she went, yeah, for what? And I said, rent. And it got really deadly quiet. You know, like my boyfriend's a deadbeat. <laughs> He's, he can't make rent. And I said, no, for Trinity House. And so she gave me the five. And um, I know she's in Charlotte, so she can't hear this, but I never paid her back. <laughs> so I'm probably the only guy that pulled off hustling five bucks out of a woman. <laughs> and so we opened Trinity House. Um, what we've done there is we've created a shelter environment where some, a woman can stay, if she has kids or not, but she can stay until she finds an income, saves up enough money, and can move into permanent housing. And so we've had... Over a 1,000 women, 130 children have stayed at Trinity House since we opened in 2011, and 58% of all of them moved into permanent housing. And then we realized that that there's a lot of overnight shelters for men, but there wasn't any kind of a long-term program commitment to men. Mm -hmm. And so we began looking, and we found Grace House. Um, And that was... uh, abandoned apartments in Bellwood that they hadn't paid a mortgage or, or the taxes in seven years. The bank wrote it off. Um, Becca called the land, the owner and he said, my boyfriend's doing stuff with the homeless. You want to, maybe you could give him your building. And he went, I don't care about no damn homeless people. And she went, it'll come off your credit report. And he went, Oh, when's he want to meet? <laughs> and so true story. I made him sign the things inside the jail. I made him listen to some big steel doors closing a few times before we whipped the paper out, and he could hand it to me. And then we turned that into Grace House, and that's 59 beds. 
So 25 women at Trinity and 59 beds for men there. And then I guess seven years ago in January, they predicted on, I think, the 6th of January that it was going to be 11 degrees. And there's nothing for the homeless and the people that are out on the streets to go to. So we talked about opening the safe house, which is across from the jail still at that time. And then we found out that uh, the Culmer Center was supposedly going to be opened. But through a series of bureaucratic questions, they never opened it. And a guy named Paul Garner, a graduate of Baker High School in this town, who was homeless and a drunk, died of exposure. He couldn't get into a shelter because he was drunk that night. And he sat down to take a break, and obviously the break lasted forever. I think it's horrible that in this day and age, somebody could die on our streets. So we opened the safe house that second night. And the next week, we had a warming spell, and we had two nights at 18. And we opened the safe house again. Now, I worked for the sheriff's office, so dispatch knew, and 911 knew that if you ran into somebody out on the streets, drop them off. Mm-hmm. We'll take them. Okay, we don't have to incarcerate them and spend the taxpayers' money for that. And then the next week, it snowed. I'm from Miami, remember? (laughs) Snow is on the internet. (laughs) Snow is in your freezer. Ice doesn't go in the yard. And, um, And so the pastor at Rose Hill Methodist called up and he said, can I help? And I went, sure, how about your building? And he went, okay. So Red Cross helped us move all the stuff that we need at the safe house, over to Rose Hill. We set up that morning. We became the safe house, then at Rose Hill. We dealt with the snow and for that two-day event. And then um, Buddy Cooper, who was then UMC district superintendent, said, you guys are doing what we want to do here. Why don't we partner? And so we agreed to move the safe house into the church. Um, and then as things happened over the years, the church decided that they really weren't going to stay, um, and we bought the campus from them at a, at a really nice, fair price. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we've been at the, the Rose Hill Methodist campus for several, well, we've been for six years, and then we've owned it for three. Um, You've had some incredible stories of people that have been touched by what has happened through Safe House Ministries. If you want to, you know, share maybe without names, but just share some examples of changes that you've seen made happen and could not have been possible were it not for Safe House. You know, um, there was this little sweetheart named Vicki um, who was at Trinity. And Vicki could not get a second call back for any job. I mean, she would go put her application out everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So depressed and so sad. So we tried, started trying to figure out how come somebody can't even get one call back. So we decided to take, spend some time and, you know, I'm not trying to make light, but her breath, you know, at that time probably could knock a buzzard off a garbage truck, man. It was bad. And she wasn't getting called back because, you know, she had step back breath and she was going in and she was trying to get the jobs. But so and it was dental. The lady brushed her teeth. As a matter of fact, she knew it and brushed her teeth all the time. So a local dentist 
We explained the situation amongst friends. A dentist took her in, fixed her teeth. So this huge smile starts emerging from Vicky. Goodwill accepts her into their training program, and they have a, um, a, a cleaning, you know, janitorial service training program, and it feeds the contractor who has the Muskogee County School District. And so she graduates top in her class. She calls me up and said, I have a job. I've been hired. I'm going to be working at a middle school. And then she called me the next morning and said, they gave me keys. Who gives all the employees <laughs> keys? And so she said, I said, well, did you ask them why? And she said, I was afraid. And so she went back to work that night, and she said, does everybody get keys? And they said, no, just the supervisors. Because she had done so well at the Goodwill training, Goodwill was able to say, this one's got it yeah. and has people skills. Um, you know, after a and couple a of smile. Yeah. And listen, I would be willing to bet that she sleeps smiling <laughs> in case anybody was to walk in. They would not miss those teeth. Um, you know, I, I mentioned about Billy a minute ago starting a business. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge because not only does he have a successful life now, but He's hiring people who came out of our program. Um, I know a guy who's in the trucking business who came through Grace House, who now owns two large over-the-road, wow. and he's hiring guys who are coming up through our ranks to, be the, to drive the second truck long enough to learn the business so they can go spring into other jobs. Um, I spent some time with... Um, with a, a girl named Ricky, who, when she was in the jail, took the GED test and passed all passed three of the four parts. She could not finish the math. We did it the first time. We tried a second time. She improved, but she couldn't get it. Then she wanted to quit. Then it was this battle of not letting somebody quit. And, you know, she wanted to take a break. Then she took it a third time, failed again. Oh, it was sad. And so... It was just pushing her to believe that the scores don't tell you who you are. Mm -hmm. The effort tells you who you are. So if you quit, you're just a quitter. If you keep taking the test, you're a winner. And she passed it on the fourth time. So she actually did her testimony when we were entertaining the United Way on the GED program in the jail, and somebody at the table is the HR person at a company here in town. And he called up afterwards and he goes, I want that woman working for me. Oh. And so we put them together. Um, you know, um, our, just about all of our employees um, are recovering people and paying it forward people. So we want to reward folks who are willing to share what God did for them mm -hmm. with others. And the, the long-term goal is, that we're not your permanent. Maybe you work for us for a while. Mm -hmm. We're a ministry. Guess how we pay? <laughs> <laughs> so I get to see every now and then Ronald, who started as a client at the Safe House, ended up employed at the Safe House, became the manager of the Safe House. He and his wife were the house parents at Grace House when we first opened it. And he's a long-haul trucker. 
got this 4,500 square foot house over in Valley, Alabama, wow. and taking care of his wife and family and, you know, the extended family. Um, Beck and I went to the movies, and we were walking through the lobby, bite of popcorn, do the gig, right? And this guy is dragging this poor woman racing across the, the lobby. And it, I can't tell whether he's trying to beat her up, whether he's been watching <laughs> Flintstone movies and he's taking one home, you know. And he gets real close and he's going, Jap, it's date night. Meet my wife. And, of course, she's still flapping in the breeze <laughs> as he's running across the lobby. But they're married. Life is good. And they do date night every Friday night to preserve the 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 wonder of their marriage. Amazing. Yeah. You've come through a year of pandemic at Safe House, and we actually did a story about mm -hmm. how God protected what was going on there. Uh, recount that story for us. So, and, and let's... Last... March to May, during our governor's order, um, there was no housing for homeless people. Um, there wasn't enough housing for homeless people to begin with, number one. But number two, who's, who's, shelters backed off. You know, some folks shut their doors. Some people backed off. Some people wanted to protect those that were inside already and not let anybody new in. And so we that made the decision that we would open the safe house since it's a day center. It's not a shelter. We have shelters separate. We open the day center 24-7. So when we made that decision, that meant that we were probably going to be the most exposed because homeless people are at the gas station trying mm -hmm. to get a soda or whatever, trying to get a few pennies off, whatever. So then we started in, in conversations with United Way, we started to realize, where does a homeless person go if they've been exposed? If you and I were exposed, we're supposed to stay home, right, for a week and get a fresh mm -hmm. test. Where does a homeless person go? And so we made the conscious decision to take part of the church that had its own bathrooms, its own um, kitchenette, and it had its own air conditioning, both supplied from the outside and vented to the outside so that we could control air in that mm -hmm. room. And we made an isolation unit. So... The health department came out, and they gave us their blessing. As a matter of fact, they said we exceeded CDC guidelines. Um, and, I, and I felt good about that, that we were giving the best that was due to the people that we serve. Um, but started doing homework. Phil, in the United States during this COVID crisis, especially at its peak, homeless communities in every community around the country were ravaged. I mean, high death rates, high um, high hospitalization rates. We had 40 people have to spend at least one night in our COVID isolation unit. Only 21 or two were tested positive. Not a single one had symptoms. We never sent a person to the hospital. Grant Scarborough and Mercy Med had given me all these protocols. If and, and, and we got the pulse ox thing and we got the blood pressure cuff and you know, I got to do to the people what I get done every time <laughs> I go, except make them away. But um, um, and we had a porch, and then the Columbus Baptist Association gave us a shower trailer. So we, we were self-contained. We had air, we had a place to relax, we had TV, we could get through the period. 
So during the entire pandemic at the safe house, Mercy Med came over for three months in a row, May, June, and July, and tested. And we never had any positives. We had four positives one time, and it was a family that wasn't able to get tested anywhere else around town, heard that we were doing the homeless on a walk-up basis and just walked in and said, we're homeless. <laughs> and so they became our only positives of our regular group. Um, God refused to let anybody get sick that got it, protected those from exposing others. When we first opened, and you couldn't go to the store and buy toilet paper or hand sanitizer, I found a warehouse out in Idaho that had cases of isopropyl alcohol. I bought them all. I just had it all shipped here. I said, just give me every case you got. Get them on a truck and get them here. Um, as we started to get towards the end of it, census was wrapping up, and they had, you know, as all government functions do, they always buy extra. They had individual hand sanitizers and 10,000 cloth masks. We never didn't have masks. Um, from a sister who lives in Lebanon, Missouri, and all over our community here, we would get every week 25, 35 handmade masks that somebody made in their kitchen and sent it to us. So our people wore masks at all times. We did this, the hand sanitizers. We bought the fogging machine, for the, mm -hmm. and we washed the building every day for two and a half hours. So we made it clean. We, and, 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 and here's, <laughs> I love this. So I, I was in attendance on a virtual national homeless health um, seminar, and it was chaired by some docs in, in Boston, and people were recounting how COVID was ravaging their community, and somehow it became my turn to talk. And I said, well, we've had 20-some um, positives at that moment in time, and we've had none that were symptomatic. We've sent nobody to the hospital. Everybody's been safe. And so somebody said, what are you doing different? And I said, probably nothing. Um, we sanitize at entrance. We sanitize at every move. We've mandatory masks. We clean the heck out of the building. I said, but we do one thing that maybe you should try. And everybody got real quiet because we need to know what that one thing is. I said, we pray. I said, before every day, we ask God to protect this ministry, those that volunteer there, those that are coming there, those that are seeking services, and those that are willing to provide services and protect us from this monster. And God delivered every day. And that's still, and we're still delivering. Well, it, there was a lot of <clears throat> in the room mm -hmm. when I suggested that there was a tool that they might want to consider. But an almighty God jumped into the fray on that mm -hmm. and made sure that our folks were both safe. And, and, and Phil, I think the thing that I liked the most was that our clients knew that we went to the mat for them. We never closed. We never cut back. We opened and put cots out so that People knew they were safe with us. They knew that we cared, um, and our cooks are good. <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, people who look to you for uh, assistance. They look to you for food, shelter, clothing. Um, but you give them all of that plus a spiritual side of things that... Um, People need to understand. Just tell us about that aspect of what Safe House does for the inside of people. Well, 
And remember, I said, you know, we're all recovering people, most of us. I think we got a few staff people that get it that are not. So I, sometimes I have to protect them. <laughs> I had one guy say, you know, every time you say that, my neighbors call. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the two most missing ingredients in coming up from the bottom are hope and light. If, I'm, if I live hopeless... Why would I try something different? If I don't think I have any future, why would I even engage? So those two things are the most important things that people can get. And they come from my honest opinion. Hope is impossible except through salvation through Jesus Christ alone. There's no other hope that exists. And there is no light in darkness except the light of Jesus. And so we as a ministry... It's our responsibility to share the hope that God gave us and to allow that light to reflect off of us into the lives of the people we have. And the only way you can do that is by loving the people that you're with. So we do not allow our team to say, what do you need? Check off this box. I got it for you and call it a day. Our folks need to know who you are and what your story is. And if that means that you hang out and eat with us an extra few days or an extra few weeks while we're trying to get to know you, I'm going to be honest with you. If somebody came up to me and said, you know, if you would just do this, this, and this, you wouldn't have your problems. The first thing that's going on in my mind is, hey, who are you and Mm -hmm. who cares what you think? But if you've invested some time and demonstrated that you care about me, and now I trust you care about me, and you offer some suggestions... I'm willing to take those or at least give them a run. So sharing the hope of Jesus, sharing the light of Jesus into hopeless and dark situations and proving it by loving them first. So um, you don't have to go to a sermon to get a plate of food, but you'll see a sermon if you see our team. And you'll know that we care about you. I'm not just going to hand you some clothes and say next. Powerful. Thank you for what you've done in the jail for the last 12 years and also what you're doing and will continue to do as full-time CEO of Safe House Ministries. I want to ask you uh, one more question before we see that our time is coming to a close here, but the name of this podcast is uh, Faces of Faith. Who are some faces of faith? And I, I know one, uh, your grandma, Mimi. But uh, who have, uh, who, who's made a difference in, in your journey, your walk, that you would like to just, uh, you know, take the time to share with us who those people are? So probably one of my best friends ever was Rob Dahl. Knew him forever and ever, and he insisted that I come. And he was the instrument that God used to make me leave Miami and head here. Um, Becca Wiggins, whose rocking chairs on her front porch in the 13 years that we've been dating, um, has been my best friend, um, my confidant, my I need to holler mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can go gestalt on her. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jimmy Elder, who's my pastor, who... Um, 
both encouraged, tried to slow me down, and sometimes rushed me up in my spiritual journey. Um, and then a guy named Bob Vollmer, who was my professor uh, in seminary, who insisted on hidden meaning in verses and made me plow. And then Ray Vanderwall, who was a pastor of mine in Miami when I got clean mm. and um, was an accountability partner. We became such close friends that I had to leave his church because we stopped being shepherd sheep and we started being best friends. And, um, and so we decided that the friendship was more valuable than giving mm -hmm. up. And so I had to find another pastor to be the preacher boy, <laughs> and he could be my friend. But, yeah, God put some powerful people in my life who will call dirt on dirt mm -hmm. and who will, who will call laziness on laziness and, and will encourage. If somebody has listened to this podcast and, and we've gotten to the end, but they look at who you are and where you've come from, what would be the best counsel you could give them in a few minutes as we close? So find a godly mentor and submit to a godly person leadership in your life. Involve the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever recovery path you've got. You know, we have a little recovery group at church, and I had this sweet lady show up one time who doesn't do drugs, doesn't drink, and I'm going... So why are you here? And she goes, I love to shoplift. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like, and she, she said, I've taken furniture out of stores. And I went, lady, teach me. <laughs> I need some free furniture. That was a joke, y'all. But f giving my life to Jesus and then submitting to Christ-centered mentors and counselors and then taking the advice and not being in charge. I think a lot of uh, practically everything that I've heard from you uh, has come directly from your heart, and that's one of the things that I uh, aim for when people come and agree to spend an hour uh, talking about the Lord and the role that he's played in, in your life. Thanks for taking the time to do that, for being very honest, uh, very forthcoming, and, and enlightening about the jail ministry, safe house ministries, your personal life, you're a, um, a blessing to this community, Neil Richardson, and a dear friend, and I appreciate you. Thanks. It's been fun. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of Faces of Faith. And as we always say down near the end, whatever you're going through, remember, always keep the faith.